You're listening to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy. Today, we'll be talking to Barbara Davidson and Daniel Willingham about the importance of knowledge building in curriculum. We'll be learning more about the Knowledge Matters Campaign website, that's knowledgematterscampaign.org, which includes this statement, knowledge is an essential pillar of the science of reading. Broad knowledge about the natural and human world is an essential ingredient in reading comprehension, as shown by long-standing research. This is just such an important topic because the science of reading movement is gaining momentum, and we want to make sure to stay true to the meaning of that term. We can't wait to build our knowledge with you all today. Welcome, teacher friend. I'm Lori. And I'm Melissa. We are two literacy educators in Baltimore. We want the best for all kids, and we know you do too. Our district recently adopted a new literacy curriculum, which meant a lot of change for everyone. Lori and I can't wait to keep learning about literacy with you today. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Melissa and Lori Love Literacy, Literacy Podcast. We are so excited because today we are talking about knowledge. We know knowledge is an essential pillar of the science of reading. In this growing science of reading movement, we want to ground ourselves in knowledge about knowledge. So I can't wait for today's conversation. Melissa, I know you're excited. Knowledge about knowledge. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. We have um, two really special guests today. We have Barbara Davidson, Executive Director of the Knowledge Matters Campaign, and Daniel Willingham, who is a psychologist and professor of psychology at UVA. And today we'll be talking about, like you said, the importance of knowledge in reading instruction. And specifically, um, the Knowledge Matters campaign has a new part of their website with a lot of amazing resources. And we'll get to dig in and talk about everything you can find there. So a lot of exciting things to talk about. So welcome to the podcast, Dan and Barbara. Thanks for being here. Thanks so much. Yeah, delighted to be here. Yeah. So we'd love to kick this off by just asking you to uh, share why you joined the Knowledge Matters campaign. Uh, Starting with me. Yeah, go ahead. I joined the Knowledge Matters campaign because this is um, the the idea that is at its core, that children having broad background knowledge is central to reading comprehension. This is an idea that I've known about and championed, I think I first wrote about it in 2006, something like that. Um, and so it, you know, any effort that is, um, uh, that I can support that's going into getting that message out, I want to be a part of. Yeah. And Barbara, will you tell us your role in that campaign? Yeah, I'm the executive director of the Knowledge Matters campaign, which was launched in 2015 by some of the nation's, um, uh, leading sort of ed reformers who were all very concerned about the fact that this um, importance of background knowledge to literacy and reading comprehension was really being wholly ignored in the in K-12 classrooms. And what could uh, they do about that? So um, I'm a former classroom teacher of learning disabled students um, in Norfolk, Virginia. I cut my teeth in education policy at the U.S. Department of Education back in the mid-90s. And I'd say that the proudest of my long uh, career in K-12 education um, has been this privilege that I've had of of running the Knowledge Matters campaign, which Standards Work, the organization that I'm president of, sort of took over stewardship of back in 2016. So we can talk a little bit more about the campaign, obviously, as as the call unfolds. But um, so I didn't join it as much as I had the gift of um, Robert Pendicio and Lisa Hensel were the original executive directors and a director of the campaign. And they said, we kind of, we, we birthed this baby and now we really don't know quite how to raise it. So um, uh, that's what they came to me to talk about. And, and it's been my great privilege uh, since then to do so. That's so exciting. We're, we're glad that you did. Thank you, Barbara. <laughs> um, I want to start off by, I know something that Lori and I, you know, we see often in social media, you know, mostly social media, that's where we all see it, is about this idea of the science of reading and how a lot of people are equating it with uh, foundational skills only, even phonics only. Um, and and there's there's just been a lot of conversation about it. And I wanted to, maybe Dan, you can take this question on of like, 
How does knowledge and knowledge building fit in to this science of reading conversation? Yeah, that's a that's a great point, Melissa. I'm really glad you you started with that. Uh, I think scientists see the science of reading as exactly what it sounds like. There, um, reading is a topic that scientists have really looked at closely, just starting in the last twenty or thirty years, trying to understand what are the mental processes that support effective reading. Uh, and they've looked at that both in in um, people who are typical readers, so adults who are already quite fluent and quite effective readers. Uh, you know what's exactly happening in the mind as that process is happening, and then a really quite separate question is uh, what is happening from a scientific perspective as children are learning to read. Uh, the role of knowledge is clearly crucial in both processes. Um, and again, the Knowledge Matters campaign is trying to bring that to people's attention. But you're absolutely right. When people talk about the science of reading, especially on social media, but elsewhere, just in conversations, there is this misimpression that what science of reading means is phonics instruction, and that's it. Uh, phonics instruction is very important. Um, there is scientific evidence that that um, uh, to that effect, uh, but that's that's far from the whole from the whole picture. Uh, the other thing I'll mention just briefly: science. Uh, you have to be very careful in, in drawing conclusions about exactly what scientific findings mean for classroom instruction. Um, so one one distinction I draw frequently is scientific uh, studies indicate knowledge that is associated with phonics instruction is very, very important. That doesn't say exactly what that instruction needs to look like. It says much more about knowledge that children need to end up with, but not necessarily the path that they need to take to get there. I'm so glad that you brought that up. I think, can you also tell us, like, is there any research that you want to talk about for knowledge building? Oh my gosh. Oh, you better <laughs> Not that I wasn't hoping and waiting for that question. Yeah, but absolutely. Listen, yeah. we follow you on TikTok. We know what you we know what you are capable of. So oh, heaven help us. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, uh, Lori, it's good to know you're on TikTok. So now you and I are now I'm on the same Now I know. Now I know where we're all coming from. Uh no, so there's um I think there are two really um well, sorry, th there's really three sources of scientific evidence that are important. One is sort of an analysis of how reading comprehension happens uh, or is likely to happen, uh, really leads you to the idea that knowledge must be really important. And the key feature of language, not just of written language, but oral language as well, is that language is sometimes ambiguous and frequently a good deal of information that the speaker or writer intends their audience to understand is actually omitted. And it's in resolving the ambiguity and in uh, replacing that missing information that reader knowledge is so important. So I'll give you a quick example of each. Um, start with the, start with the ambiguity. Uh, so suppose that you read Lori tore up Melissa's artwork. She ran to tell the teacher. So she is, the second sentence is ambiguous because she could refer to one of two people, either Lori or Melissa. Uh, but clearly, if you're an experienced reader, you're not going to see that as ambiguous. You understand that you run and tell the teacher, not when you are uh, the perpetrator of a crime, but the victim of a crime, right? So that's how she gets disambiguated, but that obviously depends on some knowledge of the world. In this case, I've given an example where like pretty much everybody who's listening to this <laughs> understand, you know, has that knowledge, right? So it's simple. Yeah. Another example, so that's where you, you see uh, grammatical ambiguity at the level of individual sentences. Once you get to uh, making inferences across sentences, uh, again, knowledge is important. And this is probably a, a, a more important source of background knowledge and reading comprehension. Uh, so an example I give in my book, uh, 
Trisha spilled her coffee. Dan jumped up to get a rag. So if all you understood about those two sentences was, was the literal meaning of the sentences, Trisha spilled coffee, Dan jumped up to get you probably would not have understood everything the author intended. The author intended for you to draw a causal connection between those sentences. Trisha spilled her coffee because, uh, sorry, Dan jumped up to get a rag because Trisha spilled her coffee. But there's lots of information you need in order to under to um, have the right knowledge to build that causal bridge. You have to know that when you spill coffee, it makes a mess. You have to know that rags can clean a mess. You have to know that people in general don't like messes on the floor and so forth. Um, so this feature of language, all of this is stuff that the writer just left out. The writer wanted you to build this causal connection between the sentences, but actually didn't give you all the information you needed. Now, the reason authors write this way and the reason speakers speak this way is that if you actually gave all that information, the text that you read would be impossibly long and boring. Really Trisha spilled tedious. coffee. Yeah. yeah, when she spilled coffee, some of it went on the carpet. It was a pretty nice carpet. <laughs> Everybody was sad and we're, they were worried it was going to get ruined and so on. Uh, so this is a huge part of what it means to know your audience. Knowing your audience means tuning what you say or write uh, so to provide as much information as your audience needs, but no more. So those are sort of like pretty high level theory. Like you can sort of understand like, okay, I'm probably reading is going to be uh, really dependent on background knowledge. Uh, we also have formal studies of children doing the type of reading that children actually do in classrooms, showing that background knowledge really matters. So I'll give you two quick examples of each of those type of studies. One type of study that's become uh, pretty well known, I've written about it, and um, Natalie Wexler also wrote about it in, in her book, uh, is, is commonly known as the baseball study. But this is one example of a family of studies that all use the same logic. If we have two groups of children and one who are more or less comparable in terms of reading comprehension, according to a standard reading comprehension test, but one of these groups of children knows a lot about a topic. If we give all of the children a text to read on the topic, then the half of the children, the kids who know a lot about the topic, ought to do a whole lot better. That's the heart of the idea of the baseball study. You've got kids who are more or less comparable uh, in terms of performance on a reading comprehension test. Some of them know a lot about baseball. Some don't know very much about baseball. They, you know, they crudely know the rules of the game or whatever. These were American kids, so they grew up in a culture where they know that much. Um, and then you give them a, a description of a half of an inning of a baseball game to read. Uh, and then on a follow-up comprehension test, the kids who are baseball fans do a whole lot better. So that's one type of evidence we have. The other type of evidence uh, is actually really interesting. It, it, it followed from an implication of the study, the type of study I just told you about. A natural question when you think about it is, okay, so the baseball study, that's kind of cool. What does that mean about reading comprehension tests? Reading comprehension tests were usually encouraged to think of them as just sort of like that. So it gives you a number and that's how good that child is at reading comprehension. Yeah. Right. And what this another way to put it is no one who writes a reading comprehension test says this test will tell you how good children are at reading the five passages that are on this reading comprehension test. <laughs> it's offered as this is how good these children are at reading, right? right. The baseball right. study indicates, <laughs> whoa, wait, that may not be right, right? So following up from that, we can ask, okay, so who is it who's doing really well on reading comprehension tests? And Ann Cunningham and Keith Stanovich asked that question in a series of studies in the late 90s. And their answer was, the kids who do well on reading comprehension tests are probably kids who know at least a little something about lots and lots of topics. Right? So getting back to this idea that one of the main things that knowledge is doing for you is replacing whatever the author thought you probably knew and didn't need to be explained, then you would guess most things you read that are for the general reader, the author is not going to assume you know a whole lot. Right? They're not going to assume that, you know, Picasso was a cubist. 
but they'll probably assume you knew Picasso was a painter, mm-hmm. right? So right. you need to be a million miles wide, but maybe only a couple of inches deep to be a good reader of like, you know, what we think of as the general reader. So Cunningham and Stanovich, the way they tested this was they gave people a test of knowledge that was a million miles wide and just a couple of inches deep. And they asked questions like, who was Picasso? Uh, and, you know, what was the Seven Years' War? Like, who participated? A bunch of Seven Years' War is probably more specific than that. <laughs> but it has a bunch of, because uh, I, I was honestly like, no, wait a minute, I just said that. Who what? Who was Picasso? <laughs> <laughs> you get the idea. So We get the idea. Well, yeah, like broad questions and, and lots of different topics. And then they, these were college students, by the way. And then they administered a standard reading comprehension test with the expectation you're going to see a very high correlation between mm-hmm. how much stuff people know and how effectively they're able to read. And that's exactly what they observed. So that's two, three sources of evidence or this analysis of language, like there's all this information omitted and it's knowledge that replaces it. And then the baseball study kind of expertise thing, and then this broad correlational study. Oh my gosh, yeah. that's so fascinating. <laughs> it is. I know, as you were talking, Dan, I was jotting a couple notes, and I was thinking about the idea of knowledge in types of knowledge and then ways that we, I guess, do knowledge or ways that we um, – ways that knowledge shows up in the classroom. So I was hoping, and and I do think a lot of this has to do with equity, which is what we're getting at. But um, I want to just pause and ask maybe for, for you and Barbara to chime in here. I'm thinking about like the types of knowledge. You mentioned world knowledge earlier. There's also, lo- I mean, lots of different, right? Like ELA knowledge, history knowledge, right? There's lots of different knowledge that, I mean, maybe history fits into world, who knows? I, I think we could talk a little bit about that, like just kind of sharing the the types of knowledge. But I'd also like to name for listeners some terms that we throw around a lot on this podcast. Like we talk about building knowledge. We talk about knowledge building texts. We talk about activating prior knowledge, right? We talk about um, knowledge in different ways. And I just thought it would be helpful to kind of just pause for a moment and, and chat about that if you two are game for it. And I don't think we talked about this in the pre-call, so I want to make sure it's okay. <laughs> well, Dan, I think what would be great is if you could sort of extend what you were um, uh, sharing and, and talk about this sort of the importance of this Velcro, this schema that, um, uh, that, that, that is so necessary to students to, uh, for students to have as they make meaning of the text that they're reading. Is that, is that fair? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're, um, we're talking about reading comprehension right now. I mean, knowledge... Um, it's become increasingly clear that knowledge plays a role in all of the high-level cognition, cognitive processes, um, especially in, and including all the ones that educators are really hoping that students are going to uh, learn about and excel in at school. So reasoning, problem-solving, creativity, um, not just as we wouldn't say reading comprehension is sort of completely separate from knowledge. It's just, it's just a bad way to think about how comprehension operates. It's really intertwined with knowledge. Yes. Same thing is true of all of these other uh, cognitive processes, sort of our, our highest hopes, our, our, our grandest aims for what's going to happen, turning kids into great thinkers, enabling them to be great thinkers. All of this depends on, on background knowledge. Now, you know, to get at Lori's question, like what type of knowledge it really does vary depending on what the task is in front of the child. So I've emphasized the goal of uh, being an effective sort of general reader. And, you know, a lot of, uh, in the last 10 years, I've made a habit of asking parents, what do you, what are your hopes uh, for your child as a reader at the end of grade 12? Like, what do you want them to be able to do? And admittedly, they probably never thought about it that carefully, but like they mostly say the same thing. Uh, which is that that's what they want. They want their child to be able to pick up the Washington Post and read it. And that, you know, they want to be a, sort of the, the educated layperson type reader. And a million miles wide and not very deep is really what you need for that. If, on the other hand, you're going to become an astronomer, well, obviously you need much more in-depth knowledge, right, to be able to read the types of texts that astronomers are reading. 
math to go, you know, in a quite different direction. Math requires a really quite different type of knowledge. So you need, uh, you know, math facts needs to be really automatic, right? So when, when we get to the question of like, what type of knowledge, as, as Laurie asked, you really need to specify, well, what do you want the child to be able to do? That's so important. And I'm wondering if we might be able to talk a little bit about that idea of equity that's popping up for me as you're, as you're sharing. Yeah. Um, like, what do you want the child to be able to do? Well, I think we all want our kids, whether they're our, quote, ours, right, or not, to reach their highest potential. And in order to do that, what I'm hearing you say is that knowledge is a really critical piece in that. Um, could you sh- say more about that? And, and Barbara, I imagine you have some things to share about that too. Sure. I mean, we we know from so there there are two parts to this. One is you know what knowledge, and and when you start emphasizing knowledge, people pretty quickly start asking, well, who's deciding which knowledge is important? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think from a cognitive psychologist's point of view, the answer follows very closely from what I've been saying. Well, what do you want the child to be able to do? Whatever they know a lot about, they will be better at reading texts on that subject, reasoning about that subject, problem solving on that subject, and so forth. Um, so you do kind of need to like plant your flag and say, this is what I want children to know by the end of grade 12. This is what I want them to be able to be really adept at uh, reading about and so forth. And I think there are different answers to that question. This now is not no longer a question about that science really has any contribution to make. This is a question of values. You know, is our children going to school largely for economic reasons and they're going to school so they can get a job? Um, are they going to school so that they can learn about the cult, their own culture and sort of um, learn more about who they are? These are both perfectly, you know, uh, defensible reasons for children to go to school, they lead to quite different implications about what children ought to learn while they're there. Um, It's also the kind of thing school boards really don't want to talk about uh, because this is, this is, you know, time is a zero sum game. And the more time you spend on one thing, the less you have to spend on something else. So that's one piece of the equity pie, Lori, that, that you asked about. The other thing I will say is that when we look at socioeconomic status of parents, we there is immense evidence, and this will surprise no one, that children who come from homes where there is less money start school with less knowledge. This is no great surprise. They have their fewer opportunities, right? If you've got one of the things parents spend their money on is opportunities for children. That already shows up on the very first day of kindergarten. And that you know, there are nationally representative samples of tests where they're asking the kinds of things children that age might know, like why are there stoplights? What does a police officer do? Right, sort of the type of general knowledge that we've been talking about. And kids are already behind. And so some people look at those data, and I would include myself. Uh, and to me, that highlights the children who are have fewer opportunities at home. School represents. A real, one of the main opportunities for them to acquire background knowledge that is the fuel behind effective reading. And so we really want to make sure that everyone, but especially children who don't have opportunities at home to acquire that knowledge, have that opportunity at school. I just want to like stamp this because we just talked so much about why knowledge is so important. And in education, people can be very like black and white and hear one thing and take it to the extreme. And I just want to make sure we're stamping that we see how important knowledge is, but it is not the only thing that will lead to a successful reader, right? That we, we know that, you know, you can't just give it, give kid, give a kid a bunch of t- like all the knowledge in the world and not teach the other parts of, of reading like fluency and, and those foundational skills and all of that. I just want to like stamp that and acknowledge it. And if you have anything to add to, back me up on it. I'd appreciate it. <laughs> no, no, I think that you're a hundred percent right. And, you know, we're, we're sort of circling back. You're right. I sort of right. committed the sin that I was like marking in other people. I'm like, it's not just all phonics. There's knowledge. And I don't talk about anything, but uh, knowledge. Uh, no. And, you know, not just the cognitive side, the emotional side of reading too. Right. So, I mean, all of us, you know, want children to 
uh, love reading and to read during their leisure time and all of that. Yeah, the fact that we're talking a lot about knowledge does not mean that all these other things aren't absolutely uh, critical as well. Thank you. Yeah, perfect. Just wanted to stamp that. You did agreement there, uh, Melissa, and I'm glad that you did. And at the same time, I'll say that um, knowledge needs to get its day in the sun as yes, well. And agreed. so I'm really delighted that you all are, you know, sort of focusing and spending the month of January and maybe even more time as the year uh, of 2023 rolls on, on, you know, this, this really important topic. And um, so can I just give a little bit about the Knowledge Matters campaign? Yes, um, please. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> People like Dan and, and, and other members of the Scientific Advisory Committee are so, so very important to this work. Um, the Knowledge Matters campaign itself is a communications effort. We're not, you know, sort of a think tank. Um, we, uh, our motto is to uh, find the good and praise it. So, you know, we want to help um, educators, parents, and others um, understand you know, what it looks like to put knowledge building at the center of the literacy instruction, even as we, you know, focus on foundational skills and um, address the standards, you know, that we're expecting students to master and so forth. Um, so, you know, we lift up great curriculum, uh, great, uh, great teachers, uh, uh, great instruction and, and that kind of thing. The Knowledge Matters campaign is probably best known for this Knowledge Matters school tour that we've been on over the last sort of four years where we're uh, uh, crossing the country and visiting um, school districts that have put their bet on the implementation of high quality knowledge building English language arts curriculum, uh, curriculum that's really been specifically designed to to create these kinds of uh, experiences, this kind of um, uh, background knowledge. And, and we're particularly focused on districts that are serving large numbers of students that are growing uh, that, that are growing up in poverty and have had um, or, or in homes with uh, less education and, and therefore not access to some of this, um, these life experiences that Dan speaks about as being, you know, one way in which this, this kind of knowledge and this ability to make these connections and, um, and, and, and fill in those gaps that are not sort of explicitly stated in text and so forth, where, where that comes from. So, um, uh, I, I mean, I can go further if you want, or I'll sort of respond to some questions that you all might have about really how we how we do this, how we give um, uh, action to this this notion of finding the good and, and, and praising it. Yeah, well, I love that. I love finding the good and praising it. I think that resonates a lot with what we do here on the podcast too. We, you know, we do talk about some tough stuff, but we also lift up the really good things. And that's actually why we started the podcast was to lift those big, important ideas up. And we were like, if we're talking about this, <laughs> we know that others probably want to hear about it and talk about it too. So um, we love that. And I think it might be helpful to start Barbara by kind of sharing with us what distinguishes the curricula. Like, let's start with the materials. I think that's really important. What distinguishes these curricula from others? What do they have in common? And really, what makes them great? I mean, we know they're building knowledge, so <laughs> yeah. we'll say that. So on our website, we've identified six curricula, and there will be um, you know, others in years to come, I'm sure, that um, that we believe do a particularly strong job of, of, of building this background knowledge in ELA. We're not talking right now, and I think there's a very appropriate time to talk about the amount of time in school that's being given to science and social studies, because that's surely a way to, um, to build some of this knowledge as well. But, you know, sort of the history of the campaign, at least so far, has been to look at the way in which the English language arts block, which is considerable in, in in K-12, I mean, in K-8 and particularly K-5 schools as an opportunity to do this, because after all, why shouldn't students be, you know, learning to um, apply the skills that they're learning as a part of their ELA instruction uh, to text and, and, and content that's, you know, that's, that's worthy. 
So, um, so we're recognizing uh, six uh, curricula, uh, which and, and we choose to not spend our time sort of focusing on curricula that some might consider to be high quality because it aligns to standards, but that we um, uh, do not feel do as good a job of, of, of building this knowledge. Instead, we're wanting to shine a spotlight on those that we think do that were intentionally built to um, sort of create that scaffolding that, you know, that Dan was referring to. Um, so what distinguishes them? I mean, first and foremost, I think it's their focus on content. And by that, I'm not talking about like random acts of content. You know? <laughs> good, good point. Um, I love that. <laughs> yeah. It, it's deep dives into um, a, a topic in order to build that kind of domain knowledge that, you know, Dan describes us as, as being so important. So, you know, one thing is that rather than jumping from, you know, topic to topic or pulling up an article on some interesting thing that's happening in current events and then, you know, later on in the day or, or, or tomorrow, you know, pulling up some other unrelated article that's interesting in the moment for students, but isn't deliberately providing this opportunity to look at a topic, to to dwell in the vocabulary. And I'm not talking about, you know, um, domain-specific vocabulary. I'm talking about academic vocabulary that students simply encounter, you know, in, in, in or, or uh, uh, in, in, in all of their reading, looking at that um, at that topic from multiple perspectives, reading informational texts, literary texts. In the case of one of these curricula, um, Wit and Wisdom, you're actually studying art that happens to give you an opportunity to sort of explore that topic a little bit further. Um, so these are topics. I think another thing that's important to know is that they're topics that that um, not only are they engaging for students, and you know, and they are. But they're important to, you know, sort of being able to relate in years to come to other content that students will, you know, be encountering in their studies. So, you know, of these six curricula that we that we highlight on the website, you have, I'm just giving a sampling when I say, you know, K-5 students learning about the War of 1812, about ancient Roman civilizations, about the Harlem Renaissance, about um, biodiversity in the rainforest, um, certainly the civil rights movement, the Great Depression, and so on. I mean, it seems to the average sort of um, listener, I suspect, well, of course, kids are learning about these things in school, but the fact is they weren't. <laughs> and, and, you know, we all know it. Or and, like and you said, course. Barbara, maybe one day they read an, one yeah, article, they read an article about, about it. it. But that, that's interesting in the moment, but know, it hasn't yeah. really been teased out and, right. and students haven't been asked. So to, you know, to think about and, and, uh, um, uh, and, and look at it from different perspectives and so forth. So the topics um, aren't just rich, the text that students are using as they're learning about those topics that they're encountering as they're, top, uh, as they're um, uh, exploring those topics, they're complex, they're diverse. Um, the vocabulary that they're learning is, um, is, is, is rich. Um, most of these curricula are doing this through authentic trade books. That's a real differentiator from sort of your average uh, basal reader. Um, one of them is not using um, authentic texts, but ones primarily ones that they have um, written themselves. That would be Cornology uh, or the CKLA curriculum. But those books that they have written are, you know, really every bit as rich as the um, as authentic uh, as award-winning trade books. So that's a real distinguishing characteristic is that students are working with, using, having in front of them in their hands, beautiful, well-written, award-winning um, uh, texts that are not only beautiful to look at and, um, and, and, and um, rich in their uh, language and so forth, but, um, but ask them to look at things from, you know, from different perspectives. Um, another big differentiator, distinguisher, I think, is the fact that writing is integrated. Oh, yeah. So, you know, again, this seems like second nature to us, right? Why, of course you would be, you know, asking kids to uh, to do their writing uh, with texts and topics that they are, um, you know, in, engaged with in the moment. But that's not really been the way that it is. And yeah. we, we all know that, too, that writing has been out there, you know, 30 minutes later in the day. And, you know, you get, get a, a writing prompt. And um, 
So it makes perfect sense that we would do it this way, but um, but you know the fact is that we haven't. So in in with, with these curricula, students are constantly being asked to respond to prompts about and and, and finding evidence within the text to sort of uh, respond to discussion questions and and, and and engage in Socratic seminars and 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 and, and write uh, compositions and so forth. Barbara, can um, I can I add one thing to that? Yeah. I think. That so I saw something on social the other day and a teacher was like, I am confused. Like I don't I don't understand this integrated thing. I feel like it would take so much longer. And what I like, I just feel like what you're saying resonates so much because until we saw the high quality materials, we like well, I'll speak for me, not Melissa. I I totally understand that. I understand where that teacher was coming from. Like, oh my gosh, that must take so much longer. That it it it, it does, you know, it's 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 not a separate block. Students are going to spend so much time learning skills within the lesson. That would take a long time. It actually isn't. And what I would say is that to any teacher out there like who might be thinking that, go to the, the Knowledge Matters campaign website. Look for these curricula and then like ask for samples or figure out how to get your eyes on a sample. I do think in this case, seeing is understanding. And I don't think that Melissa and I would be sitting here today with the very deep understanding that we we have and still learning so much more without having seen those materials from the get-go. It was those materials like seeing that seeing that integrated approach and yeah. and seeing what efficient writers and readers it built and time I mean, time wise how efficient it was and um the rich and I would text. Say, Lori, yeah, go I, ahead. I mean in Baltimore what we heard over and over from teachers and Barbara, I'd love to hear if you're hearing this outside of Baltimore and other places was that because the kids had so much to write about, they had that, that knowledge from what they were reading that the writing actually, you know, you could do so much more with writing because they weren't just sitting there. Like, I don't know what to write. Right. They had so much to say that then you could just like clean it up with all the other thing, you know, the, the writing skills. That's exactly it, Melissa. And that's what we hear everywhere that we go uh, along this knowledge matters school tour that, 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 when we ask teachers, one of the first, what, what are some of the things that you're noticing that's changing, even in places where they've been implementing these curricula very recently, and they will almost uh, to a to a district that we have visited, the first thing that they start to notice is how much better the students' writing is, and um and I don't know that that's so much the result of their having worked on writing, right. you know, and and having been more successful in four weeks or six weeks time uh, or or whatever it is in in teaching kids to write, it's because they're asking them to write about things that they're, they're doing so much of it and they're doing it in the moment and they're doing it utilizing the content. I love to tell the story of um, talking to a little girl. I believe it was in um, Lenore City, Tennessee, which is uh, not far from Knoxville. And we always, when we're on the school tour, like to, uh, you know, talk to the kids and so forth. And these kids were talking about, you know, I asked them, well, sort of, what's your favorite part of the ELA block? And they will tell me that it's that, that it's writing. And I'm thinking, holy cow, you know, <laughs> how, how is that the case? And um, so I was teasing this out with a little girl and she looked at me kind of like, well, she says, and so I said, well, what, you know, why is it that you, um, that, that you like writing so much more now than you did, you know, before? And she says, well, now I have something to write about. Yeah. You know, so it turns out that um, writing about their summer vacation, you know, in some isolated section of the ELA block or writing about how they felt about some experience that this, that the, that the um, you know, that a student is having in some, in, in some text, some silly little text. Um, instead, they're being asked to sort of, uh, defend a, um, a position that uh, we were in a school the other day where, you know, it was, was the, um, was the king right to, you know, to, to feel this way or, you know, and so they had to argue and I, you know, both answers were correct. Right. Um, and then they wrote about it. So, yeah. Um, there's uh, there's a lot. Uh, I, I sort of can't imagine going back and doing it another way where you're out here writing and, you know, teaching them how to write and, and yeah. write about certain topics and, um, and so forth. Well, going back to Dan's good point earlier, good question, I should say, like, what do you want your child to know at the or be able to, to do right, in terms of reading at the end of 12th grade? When I think about <laughs> this this concept of writing or thinking I would want my child to be able to defend a claim, to think about 
uh, using text evidence to support their thoughts, to be able to articulate clearly um, their, what they think on a topic and to, to feel strongly on a point, to have enough knowledge to feel strongly on a point that they feel like they can defend it. Not necessarily like be able to write about what they did at recess. Like, to, like I, not that I don't want them to be able to do that, but my thought is, if they can do all those things in that first example, then they definitely can write about recess. Right. Yeah. But if they write about recess, I don't know that they can do all those other higher level things. Yeah. Well, and it turns out that kids are just a whole lot more interested in, 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 in you know, in telling what they know about a topic than they are about totally. sharing how they feel. I mean, yeah. I sometimes get daunted by a, by a writing, you know, prompt like that. Um, I want to mention one other thing before we go on to what some of your other questions might be, and it's probably the most um, important in my mind distinguishing feature of these curricula, and that is that um, is that a lot of the instruction is happening in whole group time. Um, uh, all students <laughs> in the classroom are exposed to these complex topics, grade level texts, and so forth. Um, that is a huge differentiator. So um, it turns uh, and and you know. Dan talked about the uh, about equity, and and I think it is the strongest argument for uh, why a curriculum that is intentionally built to really create this kind of equalizing background knowledge, where all kids are going to know, you know, have have the 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 right to engage and and dialogue on whether it be write about or participate in, uh, you know, a Socratic seminar or, or, or turn and talk to a neighbor about a topic. You can't do that if you were out of the room, um, you know, getting some, some, some special support when the anchor text, the text that is really that which the kids are, you know, for the most part, uh, uh, discussing, you know, uh, during the day, if, if you're not in the room when that, when that's happening. Um, and that's, uh, that has been one of the things that we have heard most, um, uh, most resoundingly from teachers and educators that are implementing these curricula. Yeah. Um, Barbara, I'm wondering if you could like, I, I know at this point, I'm sure teachers are like, okay, this website, I want to go see it. I want to hear more about it. Can you actually like talk a little bit, like if they, if teachers go to the Knowledge Matters campaign website, where where should they go to find this information? What should they click on? And then, like, I know there's a lot more that they'll find, too. So can you talk a little bit more about, like, what else they'll see? Yeah, you know, um, there are two parts of the website that at the present time, there's another one coming that I think will be particularly interesting to them, but we can talk about that maybe at a later, later time or a later podcast. Yeah. Um, but the two sections of the web website that I would really encourage, and this is the knowledge, knowledgematterscampaign.org website, which was relaunched uh, last summer and, um, and really contains a, a a ton of information. One is the explore curricula section mm -hmm. where we're actually looking at these six curricula that we think do an excellent job in different ways of building this, this knowledge, but do have a, a building background knowledge, but do have some of these um, common sort of character, <clears throat> excuse me, characteristics across this category of, of curriculum. And there you will see these six curricula sort of, um, you, you'll be able to very quickly look at a, a, a map, you know, that sort of plots the different topics and how they build over the grades um, uh, from K to eight. You'll be able to take a, 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 a jump on a carousel slide that enables you to look at the texts that are being used. And, and then, you know, really to the point that Lori was making earlier, go and go and look at them. Uh, we don't certainly house, you know, all of, uh, but we house samples of, of the curriculum. So again, the, I mean, our idea is that we want parents and, and educators, particularly teachers to be able to see what, what this looks like. And, 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 um, and, and that's more important really even than calling out particular curricula. We want to be able to help folks um, see that, that this is possible, that this is very, you know, it's very doable to, this is not some sort of theoretical idea. Um, the, the, what, you know, the, the, what the, the many virtues that Dan sort of shared is not something that teachers have to figure out themselves how to, how to benefit from, but there are great curricula there to, um, to, to support them in doing so. So that's one piece um, the other is that there's, um, and I, it's the, 
my sort of favorite part, and I got to put a real uh, plug in for it. It's visit classrooms. So we have over 140 short video segments, like 30 second to sort of Twitter length, you know, videos of interviews with the hundreds of teachers and and, uh, uh, and panels and, and individuals and administrators that we've met across uh, these, these many districts that we've visited who are talking about, you know, what the benefits have been and what it has been like for them, both from in terms of social emotional learning, um, you know, obviously uh, educational equity, uh, academic rigor, and, and, and a lot of the benefits that the teachers themselves are experiencing. We haven't had time yet to talk about that, but, you know, there is a, are many benefit, there are as many benefits that we have heard to the teacher experience of um, utilizing these curricula in their classrooms as there are student, you know, benefits in terms of um, engagement and, um, you know, academic achievement and all of that. I mean, the fact that teachers are turned being re-excited, <laughs> you know, about, about, uh, about teaching reading because there's not only because they're seeing the results and, and what teacher wouldn't rather be, um, uh, you know, have kids engaged and excited and, you know, saying they don't want to go out to research because they really want to stay reading this you know story. Oh, can we stay in? Um, but, but that they are able to collaborate, you know, it's sort of, it's intellectually <laughs> uh, rewarding. Uh, not only is it rewarding in terms of the results that they're seeing, but I think that um, that faculty are um, uh, appreciating teaching in this way in ways that they haven't for many, many years. Yeah, I will tell you, my favorite part of the website is um, the PDFs that you can download to see the big knowledge topics for each curricula. That's my favorite. I love just thinking about all of the knowledge that the kids are gaining and how they're gaining that through what texts and... I. Thank you for for doing that and for posting that. I think that's a really important and just critical piece on your website for um, for folks to jump into and see if you're if you're new to knowledge or maybe maybe you're a knowledge veteran but you're like I need to I need to figure out what topic like tell me more about the topics why these topics go explore them I think they're awesome so thank you for for doing that. Well, and Lori, it makes it makes the point, and I'm glad. I appreciate. I'm, I'm so glad that you that that that, that is um, has been important to you, because it makes the point that we're not. That, you know, the Knowledge Matters campaign and those of us who are sort of zealots for this cause um, are not saying that there's particular knowledge. It, you know, I, I, I certainly. Um, Don Hirsch has made a very compelling point for, you know, a, a, a body of sort of shared knowledge uh, that um, that we kind of assume that that everyone will have and, and, and yet gaps show up. And, and that does, uh, you know, sort of uh, uh, interrupt uh, your opportunity to engage, you know, with 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 other fellow students and fellow man uh, uh, in time. But um, but really, there are, you know, there are there are very different approaches to how to build that knowledge and sort of what's um, uh, and, and, and so each of these curricula have a little bit of a different sort of culture in that way. We're simply saying that there's a lot that we assume that people know and, uh, and that we have assumed wrongly that, 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 that we are supporting students in, in, in building. And so, you know, um, let's, let's start at the youngest grades. And there are different ways to do that. And Barbara, I'll point out that even though Don has argued that there's uh, some um, helpfulness in shared knowledge in terms of sort of making Americans feel like some common sense of purpose and making us feel bound as a people and so on. Don has also been quick to say, yeah, you know, I sort of came up with one idea of what this uh, set of knowledge should look like and what the sequence should be. But, you know, there, there should be lots of these and uh, so that schools and uh, teachers have choice. Uh, um, there's more there's obviously more than one right way to do this. And that was just so important to us, um, Dan, to be able to show that on the site. I think that was another one of the sort of purposes of the site was to be able to show that uh, while you may have a different idea about what that sequence is and, 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 and where the priorities should be placed or what have you. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't still be, uh, you know, concerned about uh, about building knowledge because there's just so many virtues to, um, you know, again to uh, building that 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 scaffolding to uh, building uh, that um, that 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 bedrock for reading comprehension that's so important. 
That is great. I know we're like running out of time and I have a million more questions for both of you. <laughs> um, before we wrap up, I'm wondering just, I mean, is there anything that we didn't get to that either of you want to share about the website, about knowledge building in general, just anything over the course of this conversation that you want to make sure I'll, people I'll, hear? Very, yeah, very briefly. Thanks, Melissa. I'd like to amplify something that Barbara uh, mentioned and sort of implied at, but I, I would like to make a little bit more explicit. And it was when she talked about the the idea of random acts of content being a problem. And she mm-hmm. went on to talk about the importance of depth, which I absolutely agree with. The other aspect of that is that of, of where you don't want randomness is in terms of sequence. So if you accept that, um, what you know is very important to what you are able to understand, then clearly what we want is everything that every lesson plan that uh, uh, we present to a child, we want it to be the case that they have all of the background knowledge they need and it stretches them just a little bit mm-hmm. so that they can feel like it's in their grasp, but there is, you know, there, there is something new for them. In order for any educator to know that yes, this is that's what this lesson plan is going to do. They need to know what the children already know, and about the only way you can do that is not just with a, a a curriculum that is chock full of stuff, but one that is also carefully sequenced. That's so important. I I think about that all the time. I think it's impossible. We have teachers ask us all the time. I don't have a knowledge building curriculum. How do I? do this. And I think that what you just said, Dan, is impossible for a teacher to execute because unless you have that curriculum and you know kids are going to do this in, you know, you're a fourth grade teacher, you know, kids did this in third grade, this in second grade, they're doing this in fifth grade, they're heading to middle school, they're going to do this. You, It's impossible to do that without a structured curricula. I think, you know, Lori, I think it was the second or third uh, school tour visit that we uh, went on back in probably, I guess it was 2017, 2018, um, talking to a, uh, a a group of teachers who uh, were in a district that had spent an awful lot of time writing curriculum and, and, and you know, really feeling like they had done as best as, as well as they could and um, could, you know, could possibly have done and, and just, you know, hours and hours and hours of outside of school time uh, committed to it and so forth. And then, um, and, and, and looking at me and saying, in our wildest dreams, we could never have put it together this brilliantly. <laughs> Not only the sort of sequencing over the course of the years, and the sort of, you know, coming back to topics at sort of the right level now at the right you know, at the right grade and so forth, but identifying the texts that gave them the opportunity to do that. And um, anyway, it was a very, um, the other, the other thing, of course, that they say is that we, we would never have imagined that our students could, could do this mm-hmm. and, and also being um, blown away, you know, about their ability to, um, to manage the texts, but do so because of the support that the curriculum um, has, has given to them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's somebody's actually lots of people's full-time jobs to write that curriculum. Yeah. And that's, I just keep thinking about that. I'm like, we ask so much of teachers. We can't also ask them to write their own curriculum. <laughs> that's impossible. So well, Dan, I know you were going to say something. Did you, I'm going to pass it to you now. Yeah. I just wanted to add one thing to it that, um, and this bears on what you were just commenting on, Lori. Um, you know, there, when you said like uh, teachers, it's, it's such a burden for them to write their own curriculum. There are for every teacher though, there are jewels in uh, in the year where they've got, you know, a topic that they absolutely love or a book they love reading with their children. And that's one of the things you do have to be prepared for when you are doing a school-wide or district-wide curriculum. Like everybody probably has to give up something. You know, there may be things that you love doing that just like that actually really needs to go in the grade before you or whatever it is. So, you know, you have to, we do, and I've seen this in higher, in higher ed as well. When I talk like within the psychology department at the University of Virginia of like how we're going to sequence things, people are like, but I'm royalty in my classroom. Like you can't tell me what to do. Right. So it, 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 it's a bitter pill, but the payoff is absolutely huge. And I think it, uh, so I want to be candid about what I see as what, you know, does come up as something that's um, is a, a less than wonderful part of this. 
Uh, but that's really like, that's about us, right? That's not about our students. That's about us. And so we have to keep that in mind and um, yeah, the payoff will be worth it. Dan, I had a district superintendent in Tennessee telling us that they had done this sort of rough audit um, as they got into uh, working with the curriculum and realized that they had been that that that, that, that every that every grade had been uh, had a unit on pumpkins or some you know something around <laughs> Halloween time. That they, so they said their kids were really 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 expert about you know, pumpkins, but um, and because teachers liked to you know, teach about it around yeah. Halloween. I remember hearing that from students, you know, they would like, well, we read this book, we're reading this book again, like we read this last year. <laughs> and, you know, as, as an individual teacher, if you're planning, you don't know what necessarily without a curriculum what they did the year before. And yeah, it's, it's real. <laughs> yeah. I'm actually wondering, Barbara, I feel like we should do a, a Knowledge Matters campaign tour with with Melissa and Lori. We should do a live podcast. Melissa and Lori love the Knowledge Matters campaign tour. Would you do that? Would you come with us? <laughs> I, I don't know, but I mean, it it's, would sound like a great time, Let's wouldn't it? I was it. Ta- listening to you talk. I was like, I wish I was there to hear the teachers themselves yeah, and hear the students. I was just listening to something on the news or watching something on the news last night about all these folks that got stranded in an airport and took a bus trip together. <laughs> Uh, to Knoxville. Did you see that? That, that, whole, that whole thing, that whole road show? So yeah, you guys can come along All right. with us. And pro- We're on the bus. We'll yeah. get on the bus with you. Get on the bus. <laughs> I love it. No, I'm, I'm very serious about that. I think we should explore this. That is a good idea. All right. We will talk more. We'll, we'll let all the listeners know an update at some point because we'll definitely follow up on this. Yeah, because we've got a lot of places we're going this spring. So um, yeah. Oh, that's so fun. Okay. Well, we'll talk, but I know we are we are over time, actually. And so we just want to close out with one important question. Melissa, do you want to kick it off? Sure. So for each of you, we just want to wrap it up with, why do you do what you love for education? Or literacy specifically. Okay, I'll jump in. I mean, because it's a, it's, it's a, um, you know, playing off of what we were just just talking about. Uh, I mean, there is no greater privilege for me than being able to see kids, um, you know, getting turned on to 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 learning about stuff, <laughs> you know, to and really becoming experts on something, and um, and their minds are just such little sieves, and um, Sponges. Or, or, or sponges, <laughs> yeah. Not as if we want to keep it in there, right? <laughs> yeah. That's us. Um, that's great. That's not them. That's us. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's me at 65 plus, right? <laughs> well, they're little sponges, and um, they're just so, uh, it's such a privilege to see the agency that they start to feel. And I, and my heart is there with kids who have, I was a former teacher of learning disabled students. Um, you know, I know the struggles that these students face. Um, uh, obviously we've got, you know, dramatically increasing numbers of English learners, um, lots of kids growing up in poverty and so forth. So my heart is particularly with those who are finding agency, you know, as a result of this experience that, that high quality knowledge, rich, uh, uh, curriculum and, and teachers well supported in, in, in delivering it, um, and excited about, you know, what it is that they are doing, uh, makes, you know, makes possible for them. So that's what turns me on every day. Uh, well, uh, it's an apt question because this is the, was certainly not my path in life. And I began um, post-PhD as a, a memory researcher uh, who was not interested really in helping people learn. I was doing very, yeah, I mean, it was, it's, it's really ironic, but um, I was doing very technical work in, <laughs> in biological basis of memory uh, that didn't have promise of practical application. And it was actually E.D. Hirsch who asked me to address 500 teachers at his national conference about cognitive psychology because he thought it was interesting. And I, I did, I didn't know what in the world I could possibly tell teachers about learning that, that they didn't already know. And uh, (laughs) the, uh, I was extremely anxious going into it and really regretted that I had ever agreed to do this. And I was actually newly engaged to my now (laughs) wife and I invited her to, and she's a teacher and I invited her to come to Nashville with me to watch me give a talk about teaching. And then I, in like 20 minutes before I was to give the talk, I said, don't come. 
I made her like sit in the coffee shop. I was so sure it was going to be a disaster uh, because I, again, I thought like, what in the world do I know about learning and reading and so forth that teachers don't already know? And to my astonishment, teachers didn't know all of it. And they were, uh, a lot of them thought it was, you know, came up to me afterwards, said they, they thought it was really interesting. And that's what made me realize my field has done a terrible job of communicating what we know about how people learn to educators. Uh, and that was when I decided I'm going to try and do that. And that's what I've been doing since 2002. Did she, did she forgive you for, for kicking her out? She did. She you know, like, <laughs> we were newly engaged. She was, so she was still in the mode of like, whatever you want, honey, you know, like, yeah, yeah she was, she, she really liked you a lot back then. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yes. Oh, well, thank you so much to both of you for being here. We can't thank you enough for giving us so much time and, uh, and knowledge. Thank you for your knowledge. Well, thank you all for everything that you're doing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening, literacy lovers. To stay connected with us, sign up for our email list at literacypodcast.com. And to keep learning together, Join the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast Facebook group and be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter. If this episode resonated with you, take a moment to share with a teacher friend or leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Just a quick reminder that the views and opinions expressed by the hosts and guests of the Melissa and Lori Love Literacy podcast are not necessarily the opinions of Great Minds PBC or its employees. We appreciate you so much, and we're so glad you're here to learn with us.